I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is the London Review of Books podcast. Today we have the last of three guest episodes from Myself with Others, a new podcast presented by our US editor, Adam Schatz. In this episode, he's talking to the food writer, Claudia Roden. You're listening to Myself with Others. I'm your host, Adam Schatz, and my guest today is the food writer, Claudia Rodin. Born in 1936 in Cairo, Rodin was raised in a Jewish family with roots in Aleppo and Istanbul, where her ancestors were spice merchants. She left Egypt as a teenager to attend school in Paris, and then studied at St. Martin's College in London, where she's lived since the mid-1950s. In 1968, Rodin published one of the most influential cookbooks of the post-war era, a book of Middle Eastern food. That book revolutionized British dining, introducing households to the pleasures of tahini, pomegranate molasses, sumac, za'atar, bulgur, and rosewater. The fact that she accomplished this in the land of fish and chips and Yorkshire pudding is itself almost miraculous. But Rodin was always much more than a cook, or rather she's always seen cooking in the much broader context of culture and history. Each recipe tells a story, she's often said, and her books are full of stories about collective memory, displacement, migration, and identity. In 1996, she published what is widely regarded as her masterpiece, 16 years in the making, the product of travel in 15 countries, the book of Jewish food, which led Simon Shama to compare her to Proust. Like the Lebanese novelist Amin Malouf, who himself grew up in Cairo, she's one of the great elegists of the cultures of the Levant. Her work has earned her great admiration and many prizes, including the 1996 Prince Klaus Award, given in recognition of outstanding achievements in the fields of culture and development. I've been cooking Rodin's dishes for many years, and about a decade ago, I had the great fortune of eating at her home thanks to a mutual friend of ours, the historical anthropologist Sami Zubeda, an Iraqi Jew in London. For a small group, she prepared a number of dishes from the books she was researching on the food of Spain. Nearly all of them involved unusual parts of the pig, including offal and blood. Not for everyone, to be sure, but I loved it. She presented the food with casual elegance, nothing fussy. It spoke for itself just as I would have expected. Rodin is not a political writer, and yet I think of her work as waging a quiet and humane battle of memory against forgetting. Her dishes reveal the riches of a vanished world and thereby help us to imagine what was lost. They also illuminate the inventiveness with which people respond in the kitchen to the experiences of history, the ways in which they forge a sense of community. Claudia, it's a pleasure to have you on Myself with Others. It's my pleasure to be here. When I asked you about a dish that we might prepare together from our homes in Brooklyn and North London, 
Uh, you suggested the red pepper and walnut paste known as muhammara. Now, it, it's a dish I really love and that I've, uh, the recipe I've always used is yours. Uh, it's a Syrian recipe, and I think that's significant since three of your grandparents came from the city of Aleppo. What was the importance of Aleppo for you as a child growing up in Cairo? Yes, we thought of ourselves as Egyptian, but really our identity was Halabi. Halabi means Aleppo in Arabic. And uh, my family was so proud to be Halabis. I was part of a big extended family. All of them had come from Aleppo. And they had come at the turn of the last century. And they had, or rather, at the, the end of the 19th century, when the Suez Canal was built and all their trade, they were big merchants, not just spice merchants. They dealt in a whole lot of things, but they were on the camel caravan trade. And when that ended, because the Suez Canal made the possibility of travel through the canal by ships, there was no trade for them anymore. And so a lot of Syrians moved to Egypt, and a lot of them were Jewish. And they all came and lived in one quarter called Sakakini, and it had just been built. They went on living as though they were still in Aleppo. And they had the Jewish community, yes, had built a synagogue and slaughterhouse and a school and all kinds of things. And so, yes, he, my this is where my father was born and he lived there even when I was born. <laughs> but we didn't stay there long. My own parents <laughs> came to live in Zamalek later on. But this idea of being Syrian, but also that our food was Syrian, or we just thought of it as our food. And it's only gradually that we thought of it, I realized it was Syrian. But the food of, of Aleppo did have quite a reputation. I think you, I mean, you've written that, that the cooking of Aleppo was considered the pearl of the Arab kitchen. Yes, we did. We, we thought we, it was better than the food in Damascus and anywhere else, yes. Of course, that fierce culinary regionalism is something that you've, you've often written about. Now, some of your uh, admirers write recipes with a thousand and one ingredients. You know, you're exhausted just reading them. But yours have a simplicity and clarity like Marcella Hazan's or Elizabeth David's. They also emphasize instinct and intuition. You know, food, especially the kinds of cuisines you make, is an imperfect art almost an improvisatory art. Um, and you've always said that when you're cooking, you need to trust your taste and allow yourself a certain freedom. I, I wonder if that's the hardest lesson for some people to learn. It is hard, but really, if they let themselves, it's not hard at all. I used to give cookery classes at one time, and I gave them cards with just ingredients and no quantities. And I just said, each of you, just in my house, we were in my kitchen, and I had about 10 people, and I said, just put as much as you think. And actually, when it came to it, we all put more or less the same thing. There could be too much lemon, but this space of how much 
isn't huge. Some like a little bit more, some like a little bit less. So really, I feel if you just taste, you just can't be wrong. You can't spoil anything in cooking and do anything wrong unless you burn it completely. Because even frying onions, if you fry them when we say caramelized and people say, I don't know how far or how brown. And I just say, well, don't let it go black, but dark brown. But even if it's not too dark brown, well, it's a slightly different taste. But this is what's wonderful is that even when I cook, everything is different each time I make the same dish. And it will be with you as well, but it's fine. You grew up in, in the Kyrene neighborhood of Zamalek, where, where as it happens, Edward Said, who was born a year before you, uh, was also <laughs> raised. What was it like growing up in Zamalek in those years? Yes, it was wonderful. It was, I lived in a block of flats, which was quite grand. We could, from the window, we would sit in the balcony when my father came back from work to have meze, and we could see the flukas, felukas, passing on. Those are the, the sailing boats on the river, on the Nile. And yes, we. it was, for me, idyllic when I think of it, that we. I probably went to the same garden that... Uh, Edward Said went to in in when we were small we would go every day it was called the grotto and it had a grotto with uh, fish in in tanks and we would be there but it had also a mountain and we all we all thought the mountain was huge and we used to climb the trees. And when I went back after 30 years, I went to see those trees and they had the carvings where we used to say we had a group, a club. I mean, we were really small when we went, but we, we had our names on the tree. And when I came after 30 years, I went to pay and I told the man, I used to come here when I was a little girl. And he said, in that case, it's free. Now, the language that you primarily spoke at home was French. And you say at some point that your maternal uh, grandmother, who was from Istanbul, spoke French like a Parisian, quoted Voltaire and Victor Hugo, and was fired by the ideals of the French Republic. Uh, there were other languages that you spoke at home, like Ladino. Yeah, we didn't really speak Judeo-Spanish at home, but I heard it because my grandmother wouldn't speak it. She was, she felt she was like a missionary for French culture, but she spoke it with her friends and uh, her friends were speaking Ladino. And there was a community of Jews who had come from Turkey and from Greece who spoke Ladino with each other. And actually, my grandmother did speak to my mother in Ladino when she didn't want us to understand. But so we did. But I did speak Italian because I had a nanny who, who was a Slovene who came from a village called Gorizia, which had been a part of Italy at that time. And she spoke to us only in Italian. And through her, we also knew all the Italian nannies. They were Italian speakers, Slovenes. 
and all of them had come from what then became Yugoslavia. And uh, yes, and recently I went to her village and because I was contacted by people there who were trying to find out what happened to all their grandmas. When you evoke this, this polyglot community in Cairo in those years, I'm you know, reminded of, of actually of Saeed's memoir, Out of Place, where he writes about growing up alongside other communities, Greeks, Jews, Armenians. But his family uh, mostly socialized with uh, other Christians from historical Syria. And other than servants and a few classmates, he, he didn't really know many Egyptian Muslims. And I, I wondered, did you mostly move in a Jewish world in Cairo? What were relations like with the Egyptians? Well, uh, we were a very tightly knit community. And we knew, we thought almost anybody, because my parents discussed everybody, or rather my mother did. The women all gossiped a lot. They met all the time. They had nannies, they had cooks, they didn't have any work. But they met and chatted, and we heard them. I thought for a time that almost everybody I met was related to me in some way. But we did really meet most people, or at least Jews of the Jewish quarter, and all kinds of different groups of Jews. But yes, we met Muslims at school. My father had business relations with Muslims who became family friends. My grandfather, on my maternal side, was already dealing with those families. And we met them long after we came to London. They came to visit us every time, every year that they came to London. And yes, at school, we were a big mixture of Muslims and Armenians and uh, all different types of Christians and Copts. And we had very, very good relationship. You know, it, it's interesting because we had as a guest recently Alain Gresh, whose family you knew, and he told me he had no nostalgia for that era in Egyptian history. But when I read you or when I read Amin Malouf in his book, The Shipwreck of Civilizations, I sense that something very, very beautiful existed in this, in the Levant that you knew. And perhaps that's because you were born 12 years earlier than Gresh and saw something that he did not. Well, that was what I was going to say. I'm not sure when he was born, but I think he is talking about when we left, uh, when we had left. Because I left when I was 15 to go to school in Paris, mainly because my youngest brother had had to have an operation there and my mother was going to be there and he had to stay there because he had to stay near the doctor. And so I was there in a, as a boarder in a lycée. But I went, kept going back until I was 17. And then I came to London to study art. And I, when I went back and I was 17, there was already Gamal Abdel Nasser. And I was thrilled with the revolution. For me, I had grown up as a teenager 
going to the club where mainly they were Jewish people, children, and we were all there all day and in the evening talking. And I was hearing the older ones who were talking about Zionism and communism. And I was totally fascinated by that. I was very, let's say, excited by the idea of a revolution. I was too young to be involved in any movements. There were various movements, but I felt, yes, this is what is going to be marvelous for the people. We want that. And when I come, came back and, uh, and NASA was, was already there, uh, yes, we had put his book uh, and his things next to the door so that if anybody came in, we could show that we were all for the revolution at the time. <laughs> when things really went sour, I didn't have the sourness that some Jews encountered before they left. When you were 15 years old, you were about to be married off and and you somehow got out of that and instead you end up in Paris and you're soaking up the culture of post-war France, existential philosophy, the great marches of the left, the Humanité Festival. It, it sounds as though this was a really important moment in your in your youth. Yes, Paris was just a few years, it was 1952 and it was a few years really after the war and so uh, the scene was very, very political. And even at the Lycée, Hélène Boucher, they had a Marxist club. <laughs> and uh, they had all kinds of clubs. And I joined all the clubs because I was a boarder. But at the same time, I was allowed to go out on weekends. And uh, this is where my cousin, Eric Rouleau, was my correspondant. It means he had to sign my notes to say I'm allowed to go out each weekend. He told me, sign them yourself. So I had his signature. And on the first year, my brother was a medical student in, in Paris. And we used, he had a room in the Paris quarter. And I used to go and stay there. I used to have a room where you have to vacate during the day. <laughs> and I could sleep there at night. I had to take all my things out. But it was that kind of little hotels, which is now they've transformed in little boutique hotels. But then it was all students. And so it was a time actually of great intellectual effervescence in Paris. When, when you were on Desert Island Discs, you were asked what your Desert Island novel would be, and you did not hesitate to say Proust in Search of Lost Time. <laughs> you know, it seems to me that your work has sought to recreate a world that has been lost. Above all, your, your own world, uh, the world, yeah. this world of your Egyptian childhood. And you, you lost that world very suddenly in 1956. And that, that seems to me the key event in your becoming the Claudia Rodin we know today, you, you were in London, you were studying painting, your parents had to flee, leaving all their belongings behind after the Suez War. Yes, uh, well, w I came to London to study art because, yes, I wanted to do science, I had wanted to learn film studies in Paris, 
But my parents just said, no, there's no question. You have to... They also thought that having tried to marry me off so much, uh, they thought doing science is not good for getting married at all. <laughs> you cannot be too clever or anything. But also, I did love art and I did paint. My, um, my One of my aunts in Egypt was a painter and she taught me. And so I had come to London to study art. My older brother was studying medicine and a younger brother had come. He was at the French Lycée and we lived in a flat and I used to cook for them all the time. At that time in London, the food was disgusting. I can say it now, before I didn't dare say it, but I can say it because now London is the best place in the world for eating good things. <laughs> but so that wasn't a reason to write about food. But what happened is that all of a sudden, in 1956, my parents suddenly arrived, also with thousands of Jews from Egypt. And a lot of them were relatives and friends, and a lot of them suddenly arrived in London. And for about 10 years, I sort of lived in this bubble of emigres, asylum seekers, what nowadays one would call them, or people who passed through London deciding where they could go and settle, seeing where they would be allowed to settle, because it wasn't all, all easy for everyone. And some of them traumatized, but even not traumatized, but in shock. And one of the things that I noticed when we got together, and uh, in the early days I was living with my parents until I got married, and uh, they were always having every Friday night some friends, some relatives coming to dinner for Shabbat. And I realized how much everybody was asking recipes from each other because we weren't all from Syria. The Jewish community was really a mosaic of communities from all over the Ottoman world who had come to Egypt, and they had all continued to cook in their own way. Nobody had cookbooks. There just didn't exist a single cookbook in Egypt, and people just cooked what their parents cooked. But we did go to other people's because our life was all about entertaining, visiting, and being entertained, and it always included food. We thought, oh, I'll never eat that dish again. I'll never eat that again that we would eat at so-and-so's families. By the way, most all these families who had come from Upper Egypt, from villages, had cooks but they had taught them how to cook their cuisine. But there they were helpless. Some of them, they had forgotten or they weren't used to doing that food because their cooks had become so good at it. But they were desperate to remember, but also were saying, please 
give me your recipe for that. Please give me your recipe. It'll be some something I'll remember you for, because I might never see you again. And for most of those people, we never ever saw them again. And those recipes were something so precious, I felt. I didn't think of doing a book. For many years, I was just collecting recipes and writing to all the Jews who weren't in London, <laughs> whom I heard knew how to do something. You know, I would, somebody would say, you know, this woman, she knows how to, to make butarga. That's really something. This woman knows how to make native. This woman, it always was women, by the way. But, and then I would say, Have you, has anybody got her address? So I would write letters all over saying, uh, I'm collecting recipes. Can you give me this recipe for that? Can you give me, I heard you knew how to make lahma be'ajin. And... I got recipes back, you know, all handwritten at those times. And when I went to America, when my Jewish book came out and I traveled and went to several cities to promote it, uh, suddenly there was always somebody with a big, big smile in the audience, in a bookshop or in a Jewish community center. But usually it was bookshops or somewhere. And then I'd, I'd know, wow, who can that be? And then at the end, they'd come to, don't you recognize me? I'm your aunt, you know, <laughs> because it was by then, maybe 40 years later or 50, they was that much older, so was I feeling. But yes, for me, uh, those doing this became an obsession, an obsession and I, every pocket that I had, had little pieces of paper because everybody that I met, I would ask them, what do you do with your aubergines? Do you sprinkle them with salt? Do you soak them in salted water? What do you do with your rice? I really was a bit of a pest because a lot of people said they when they saw me coming they moved away because I was going to ask them something about cooking. Unfortunately this is what happens to me now. I have to move away because people ask me how to cook things. Even at the supermarket people ask me what do you do with that, you know? But so, yes. So now so now you're the stalked one. I mean, it's, oh, it's, yeah. it's, it's funny, Claudia, because, or I should say, it's, it's important for us to remember, too, that at, when you were collecting these recipes, uh, you were living in a community that was primarily Ashkenazi. And when Ashkenazi neighbors would come over 
for dinner and your your mother would serve this spread of Middle Eastern delicacies, they wondered, are you really Jews? Yeah, and it actually did happen like that, that on the first day that my parents were able to buy a house, yes, because when they first arrived, the people where we were staying in a flat, they said, your parents can come and we don't want any money from you anymore. They were Jewish and they just said, you can just stay. But then, because my mother was a Sassoon and had a, a British passport, the British gave them, my parents, 5,000 pounds. All the people with British passports got compensation for having been thrown out. And that is what they put down for a house. And then when we moved in, it was a Jewish quarter. It was gold as green. And the neighbors came quickly round, bringing flowers and saying, we heard that you came from Egypt and we wanted to welcome you. And my mother quickly said, yes, but I want you to come properly. Come, will you come tomorrow for tea? And then she prepared a whole lot of things, all the things that are very common now in our supermarkets. They make them exactly like my mother did from my book. <laughs> but uh, uh, filo with cheese and stuffed vine leaves, you know, all the kinds of things, uh, hummus <laughs> with tahina. And they arrived and they were absolutely so surprised. And one of them said, are you sure you're Jewish? They just couldn't believe. But yes, it was quite strange because there was no knowledge of Jews from the Arab lands at the time. In 1968, you published your first book on the food of the Middle East at a time when cookbooks weren't really taken seriously. Uh, in a recent TED talk, you said food was a, a taboo subject like sex or, or money uh, until a few years ago. And that apart from anthropologists like Claude Lévi-Strauss and Margaret Mead and Mary Douglas, food wasn't even considered a particularly important part of culture. It was considered women's business. And you said in that TED talk that cooking and collecting recipes was your way of discovering a whole world, that cooking allowed you to travel. Yes, I became really interested in the background of food because I went to the British Library to look for Arab cookbooks. We were, uh, well, we were cooking everything that we, my mother remembered from Syria. And when I went there, the librarian just said, come back tomorrow or in two days and I'll have a list for you. And when I came back, there were no contemporary Arab cookbooks at all nor in English, nor in French, about Arab food, and of course, not in Arabic either, in nothing. But what they did have, they had some medieval cookery manuals that they had there, the originals, but they all also had accounts or essays about medieval Arab food. And one of them was from Professor A.J. Arbery, and it was a, 
a cookery manual that he had found in uh, Baghdad, and he called it the Baghdad cookery book. <laughs> and uh, there was also an Andalusian cookbook in Arabic. And what fascinated me particularly was, it was actually, I think, his PhD of, <laughs> of Maxime Rodinson. And he had been a soldier, a French in the French army in Lebanon, and he was trying to do his PhD when the war, or rather the war broke when he was stranded there. The army was told to stay there because France was occupied. And so he was there for a few years and he was uh, desperate to do his PhD in sociology. He was an Arabic scholar. He went to the, uh, an archive there. He found this cookery manual from the 13th century. And he did his whole he PhD about what it said about the society during the time this manual was written. And so from there, he found out what the society was, what the trade was. Of course, it was somebody who was close to the court who had written because it was like court cuisine. But so I just realized how food can tell you so much. And also, all the people that were giving me into recipes, by then, I wasn't just asking my family and the Jews who came out of Egypt. I started wanting to interview people that I met who were from Persia, from Iraq, who had nothing to do with Jews or Egypt, because I wanted to know what do they do? How is it? I mean, not just my relatives. And out of huge interest and fascination, and I was realizing that everybody was saying, Kona baklava is ours, it's Greek, it's Arab, it's Egyptian, it's Syrian, it's Persian. And it was the same with the stuffed vine leaves. So I realized that there was something also behind why the dishes were appearing, what happened to those dishes. And that became, for me... More than a passion, but almost a, a subject of a kind of scholarly research. Uh, yes, it, I think because I wasn't allowed to go to university. I had a thirst for learning, understanding what was behind the thing that interested me most, which was these dishes that I loved to cook. But I felt to know more about a cuisine, what is behind it, makes the cuisine that much more delicious, much more interesting. It isn't just something and now I feel even more so. And when I went on to research the whole Mediterranean, whether it was Italy or Spain or anywhere, uh, I just feel finding out how this food emerged. In that case, it is in Italy, it is the village life or rather the country life before industrialization. What was it like 
because all the dishes came that are now regional dishes, that are popular in the cities, that are still popular, all developed and were born in a life that doesn't exist anymore. But it is that life to me that I want to discover. And so, so this is why I went on being interested. But at one time, if I said I, I'm researching food now, they just thought, well, I'd better not stay long in case she starts telling me about what she's researching, you know. Because the subject of food might have bored someone at a dinner party or because the fact that it was Middle Eastern food might have pushed against some of the political sensitivities of the time. Because I was researching the Middle East, people then despised the Middle East. And it was the tin pot dictator was Nasser. And also it was the colonies the colonies that the English had been there, but they never had wanted to eat the local food. When I was at school in Egypt, I was at the English school Cairo, and we only had English food cooked by Egyptian cooks. And when we went to people's homes, English people's homes, we met at school, Yes, it was all English food. And when I had birthday parties, I told my mother, please just do jelly, scones, roly-poly. That is all, nothing else, because I was embarrassed. Uh, Claudia, it's amusing to think that you're speaking of the audience whose children and grandchildren you'd be addressing in the future. Yes, this was the England that I was trying to tell them about a food that they despised long ago. And I think because when I was writing, finally I decided, yes, to make it into a book, I was also adding all kinds of poems, jokes, stories of Goha. I want them to know it's not a rubbish culture. It's a great culture. I wanted them to love the cuisine by knowing that there was some good things there as well. And, you know, your book, uh, Middle Eastern Food, appeared a year after the 67 war, which inaugurated a very painful history whose effects are still very present, still very violent and traumatic. Did, so did you see the book as having a certain political resonance? It sounds as though you, you did. Well, you know, at that time, my parents, everywhere they went, like everybody else who came from Egypt, when we were asked where we're we from, not me particularly, but they would say from France, we are French. And when they say from where? From Paris. Because to say that we were from Egypt would sort of dampen things a lot. But yes, I did keep on feeling Syrian cuisine is great. Turkish cuisine is great. Moroccan cuisine is great. You know, I did feel the greatness of it. But when my book came out, it didn't... I, they only sold 3,000 copies because the publishers stopped publishing cookbooks, just did school books afterwards. But then uh, Jill Norman at Penguin Books decided to do it as a paperback. And then it became very popular with young people because young people, they had traveled 
they had travelled cheaply in all these countries that I was talking about, and they wanted to know about chickpeas, about all the things that, you know, the lentils and the rice and the, yes, all the things that they had encountered, and they could cook where they were at university or somewhere, because it was cheap. And so, yes, it sort of gradually, gradually took off, and I gradually realised that chefs were using my book. And they were telling me quite a lot of chefs were doing Mediterranean because I went on to do a Mediterranean book. And gradually I could see recipes from my book uh, going into magazines and going into other people's books, often acknowledged, but not always. And then it's it's uh, only recently when Yota Motolenghi came on the scene that that cuisine became the trendy cuisine, not only here, but really all over the world. You've described the kitchen as this place of intimacy and of gossip and of secrets. I'm wondering, you know, during your travels, speaking with local people, collecting recipes, did you ever encounter any resistance or suspicion? Were there people who didn't want to give up their secrets? No, it was uh, just my way in. It opened doors everywhere. And even in a Hezbollah stronghold <laughs> in Baalbek, where I went to a wedding, and it was the most terrible times with Sheikh Yassin had just been murdered, and they had big images of him there and all hezbollah and they all knew I had written a Jewish cookbook. And, uh, but then I got the most attention and welcome. But yes, I felt that wherever I traveled, whether it was Italy, or Greece, or, or Morocco, or Spain, I had this thing of everybody I met, I decided to ask them, what are your favorite recipes? Because I wasn't trying to learn from chefs. At that time, all the top restaurants were cooking French cuisine anyway, everywhere. And you couldn't get local food in restaurants. It also you got tourist food. But I would ask people even on a train or in a cafe, I would start by saying, I'm an, an English food writer and I'm researching your cuisine. They I don't think they ever thought I was English. They didn't really Do you <laughs> even think that you're English? No. <laughs> But I am, I am in England. But they did accept that I was a food writer, but they were always happy to talk about their food because people in the countries where food was appreciated and valued and it was their food, they were very glad that somebody came from abroad and they wanted you to know the best. And then I would ask them, which region are you from? So I could place their dish, because they were now in the capital, but they weren't all from the capital originally. And then I would say, what would your father do? In Italy, they had all, all their grandparents and their parents, when I traveled, had been on the land. But very often, people would tell me, why don't you come for lunch? 
we are just having lunch, come. And I just felt, for me, this thing of going into the kitchen, seeing them cook the meal, and there was, this is where the intimacy for me, I felt if they had invited me in their living room, we would have been properly just talking nicely and all that. And in the kitchen, they suddenly would start telling me they had a problem. My husband doesn't want me to adopt my, my niece. My sister died after my sister died. What can I do, you know? What can I do? And start crying. Or I just think they also could talk more to a stranger who would never come back again, who could not tell their secrets to anybody they knew. And so there was this intimacy, and I got it even in Egypt. I had gone there because I had been invited to speak to the Chefs Association. I had asked, what do you want me to speak about? And said, what is Egyptian food? What is the history of our food? What is Middle Eastern food? What should we be cooking now? And I thought, I'd better go and travel and also sort of refresh myself, rediscover, discover what the villagers have, which maybe we could put in restaurants or something. And I had this thing of traveling by myself along the routes of the river, not on those boats or things. I went either by taxis or trains or things. And I would stop in villages. I also stopped in the big hotels to ask them, why don't you cook Egyptian food? <laughs> because people were beginning, tourists, to ask for Egyptian food. And then... I remember going into a village and I started walking in the village and I was so thrilled because I never walked alone in my whole life in Egypt. I was always with a whole lot of family. <laughs> and so I was walking and then a man came and looked at me and sort of followed me a bit. I was still young. I wasn't, I was young enough to be followed. <laughs> and I a woman came out of her mud house and she said, Etfaddal, you know, come in. And I came in and I didn't know what to say. She had a pot of lentil soup going. She asked me if I wanted some. I said, yes, I had lentil soup. And then she, the only thing she asked was, where's your husband? And I just said, Rah. That meant he went. And then I said, and where's your husband? And she said, with a big smile, Matt, he died. <laughs> and she could see I couldn't speak much. I could barely speak Arabic. But there I am eating her soup. And I wanted to, to see the spices, what she put in. It was basically what we had as a lentil soup at home, but she didn't put as many spices. It was cumin and coriander, and a, she had a bit of chili, and she put some lemon on. The taste of a dish, that is foremost, absolutely foremost. But still there is this personal touch that when I make lentil soup 
she i remember her you see and when i smile that claridges had egyptian lentil soup on their menu and it was from my book exactly and i thought this lady it's her lentil soup and there it is in claridges i get quite a lot of satisfaction about that you you have a story in your book on spanish food about pork that has been rubbed with cumin seeds and you suggest that this was a recipe invented by jewish conversos since spanish christians didn't use cumin with pork and i think this is for me one of the the pleasures of reading you these these um historical speculations this kind of uh, detective work that you do around food i mean we learned for example that the spanish almond cake might have originally been a passover cake or that fish and chips in britain was created by a russian jew that seems to be one of the pulls of culinary writing for you as well this detective work when i was researching the food of spain yes i went into a place where they did research on it was called el molino they taught how to make bread how to make the early medieval food in spain and the first thing i asked said what do you think is the history of the food of spain and the person there said well the origins are arab and jewish and i said like what for instance and he said like how to cook pork suckling pig or and then i said how come muslims and jews teaching you how to make pork and he said because they did to pig what they did to lamb you see they rub lamb they rubbed lamb with cumin and so they started rubbing cumin on pork and to me that was a surprise you know i went to this restaurant in london and we got belly of pork and in the crackling i found one cumin seed and i just thought, oh there it is even there there is a sign of some of what happened before that was really interesting but throughout spain i did keep uh, feeling the presence of muslims and the presence of jews as well and i felt this was one place where i was so moved the whole time apart from loving the food and loving everything there were many many occasions when i felt like crying with joy in Catalonia somewhere I ate a quince that was stuffed uh, with minced lamb and fried onions and it had pine nuts and I had eaten it in Konya Turkey which is a city where Rumi the poet and Sufi had come and started a Sufi center 
which was Iranian of influence. I had also eaten at Iranian people in London a quince stuffed with minced meat and onions. And I thought, there, it, it went to Turkey, but it took another route through North Africa, ended up in Catalonia. Muslims weren't in Catalonia very long, but after the Moors were thrown out, the Moors who, or the Muslims who stayed on as Moriscos, they were, who were allowed to convert, they had at one stage uh, been forced to move to different parts of Spain, and a lot of them had gone to Catalonia to work the land because the Spaniards did not work the land. They reared beef and they reared animals because they could move with them in the early days when they reconquered their land gradually. So it was probably through the Moriscos who were in Catalonia that that quince stuffed with meat. And now I must say I've just opened a new book that somebody has written. I won't say who. I know it's not part of their cuisine because it's not. But they've got that quince stuffed with meat because it got it from your Yotam and got, Yotam got it from me. <laughs> this is a, it's a wonderful story about this quince. And I have to say, it reminds me in some ways of a great essay that uh, Edward Said wrote about traveling theory. This is uh, traveling food. And in a sense, it's in the nature of food to travel and in the course of traveling to be adapted and, and transformed and to acquire new textures and flavors when made by other people. But that, in a way, also underscores a tension in our relationship to food, which is that, on the one hand, food inspires these intense feelings of possession and ownership, right? This is our dish. We're the ones who know how to make it best. And on the other hand, it really is in the nature of food, as you just said, to move around a lot and to change. And so I'm wondering, how does that make you feel about the whole question of culinary appropriation these days and, and these battles when it comes to Middle Eastern cuisine, for example, to hummus is it's a Levantine dish. It's a Lebanese Palestinian dish. Israelis now claim it as their own. How do you view these battles? Yeah, well, the hummus wars, yes, for me, it's a joke. And every year for a long time, there was in Covent Garden. Each time it was either the Lebanese or the Israelis making the biggest plate of hummus ever. I took it as a joke, but yes, it's not a joke for Palestinians. And they feel they have been robbed of their culture as well as their land. But of course, there are a lot of Arab Jews now, and they had hummus, we had hummus, and uh, Yes, so they are not correct. They are not really right to be so upset. And I have been, uh, the first time I realized there was in America this thing, it was many years ago when somebody, I found on the internet, the editor of an anthropological magazine who criticized me for stealing the food of people, or rather making money out of the food of other people who gave me innocently, she didn't use that term, but that I had robbed them by making money out of 
what they gave me. And obviously the person hadn't even read the introduction to my first book, to my book, because we were all desperate to record and I was doing it. And they were so glad that somebody, and until now, they can give it to all their grandchildren, they can give it to their daughters-in-law and all that. But I was so surprised. And recently, during lockdown, I was part of a webinar that was talking about Israeli and Palestinian chefs. It was an Israeli webinar, and they they discussed many different things. And I was in one about the chefs abroad, and the chefs abroad, Middle Eastern chefs abroad. And I was quite moved because there was an Israeli chef in Germany, there was Yotam Otolenghi, there was Rim Kasim, who has written a Palestinian cookbook and recently the Arabesque table. And I was quite moved. I had to be the first speaker. And I said, yes, I wrote the introduction to the first Palestinian cookbook that Sak Al-Saki had published. And we had been in conversation at the request of the two ladies who have written the Gaza cookbook in Frankfurt. I was talking with them to promote their book. I was so thrilled when Reem said, I can't believe I'm speaking to you. You're the goddess to all of us. And you're our Bible. This is where we learned. It's very moving. Very, very moving. And I was so moved. It was, for me, the most exciting thing. But I have to say that the Israelis' chefs uh, are doing fantastically well. And it might be interesting for you <laughs> to know that when my book came out in Hebrew, which was almost 50 years ago, not 50 years ago, it, when it was published, my publishers said there, I'm publishing the book, but I don't think we're going to sell it because Israel doesn't appreciate Arab culture. They want people to forget it who came from the Arab world. And they see it as an enemy culture. But then it went on and on selling forever even in supermarkets and in a, in a shortened thing and all that. But gradually I found going there to a restaurant, the only restaurant that was doing Arab food the earliest in Jerusalem was Moshe Basson at Eucalyptus restaurant. And I went with my, an Israeli friend who took me there and then she said, you know, this lady wrote about Middle Eastern food, a cookbook. And he said, he came out with the book, and he said, this is what we use. And until now, I'm in communication with him, and I go backwards and forwards. And I did start getting, because for a long time, Arab restaurants, apart from the Palestinian restaurants that everybody went to for falafel and hummus and for all the things that Israel now believes is their food. Yes, they would go there, but 
if somebody opened an, an Iraqi Jewish restaurant, no, they closed it within a year. They didn't go, those restaurants didn't work. But when my Jewish book came out, I remember going in one of the big hotels. Every night we did a new cuisine of a new Jewish cuisine of the diaspora. And so it was, you know, Iraqi, it was uh, Yemenite, it was Syrian, it was Persian, always Jewish of there. And every time we had the news, television news there, and every time they were saying, what's all this? We never see it here. Well, you should, and we never see it. Where is it? They didn't even have pomegranate molasses. They didn't know where to buy things. You know, there were things that weren't there. In the end, what soon after that, when I was in London, I had chefs coming to see me. And one of the chefs, for instance, Ezra Kedem, came and he said, I want to cook for you. And I went and I was enthralled. There were two chefs from Israel. And what I was enthralled by was that how they had, for instance, they were making something like foie gras, because, you know, foie gras was a big industry at one time in Israel, until they thought it was a non-humanitarian. And they had Moroccan aubergine jam with it, just a little bit, and Iraqi Jewish preserve. And it went perfectly. And then they did a dish, which was ferik. Ferik was the Sabbath dish of Jews of Egypt. And it was a chicken cooked with ferik, with this green wheat, in a pot from Friday night until Saturday morning. But he had made it in the most exquisite way. So whereas I had got the recipes from women who made it to put it on the table to feed their children, there were chefs who were thinking about the people who are going to pay a lot of money to eat this food and it's got to be extraordinary or great. And so it started happening in, in Israel for some years. But I think it's only Yotam who brought it to great heights. And I think of it as a nouvelle cuisine, Sephardi Mizrahi, because that Mizrahi now goes for the Jews of Arab lands. They have now a nouvelle cuisine and they can do fusion. They can do a dish from Syria and just put sug, which is a Yemenite relish. They can put something from India, even, from Indian Jews, because it's in a book of Jewish food, you know. They're allowed to use these things and all that. But the way they do it is a way that I could call, I think, with your time, haute cuisine in some cases. Well, I think that your book has provided them not only with an incredibly rich intellectual and culinary resource, but with a kind of permission, a permission to draw upon this heritage and to create new combinations. Yes. Rachel Cook 
in The Guardian described your work as an ode to homesickness. And I, you know, I'm not sure I agree because I think that the, the tone of your work is it is not really homesick or sorrowful. It's more celebratory. But her remark uh, led me to wonder, what do you consider, where do you consider home to be? I mean, is home wherever you're cooking, uh, in the way that writing might be a home for an exiled writer, you know, the book, not the country of residence. Yes, uh, perhaps I have to say that Rachel Cook was probably looking into my first book, because in the introduction I read, uh, I wrote, my compilation of recipes is the joint creation of numerous Middle Easterners who, like me, are in exile, either forced and permanent or voluntary and temporary. It is the fruit of nostalgic longing for and delighted savouring of food was a constant joy of life in a world so different. Yes. And then I described the fulme dames that I ate on Sunday. And so I think that is what. But really, it is true that it is emigres who write cookbooks nowadays. They don't write it when they're in their own country and their mother makes it and everybody makes it. They don't. They write it when they're somewhere else. And so a lot of refugees and these are the people who think about it most and who want to write it. And I don't feel English. Sometimes people say, don't you feel English? English people want you to feel English. No, I don't. And I have a studio in Paris I've had for 32 years. Because I have relatives in Israel, I have people that I really care about, apart from relatives, all over the world. And so I feel more like I'm, I could be a citizen of the world or at least of some countries, uh, where I have people I love. And yes, Theresa May has said, if you're a citizen of the world, you are, when she was talking about globalization and anti-globalization, then you are a citizen of nowhere. But no, I feel very, very happy about being in England, and I love it. And of course, I've got all my families, children and grandchildren, I hear I've got a granddaughter who went to Cambridge. She's a, a top engineer already. And now, this weekend, she won at football. So you see, we're, we are English now. <laughs> you mentioned that you were working on a book called Med. Can you say anything about this book? Oh, yes, I'll be glad to. I was looking for what I missed from the Mediterranean. I was haunted, although I'm told not to use the word haunted, but uh, I had inside me this memory of driving from Cairo to Alexandria and suddenly seeing the sea. And the joy of Alexandria, it wasn't just the sea and that we'd be swimming far and all that. As soon as we came, we stopped a place where we had fish just on the sea, on stilts or something. There was a jongleur, or they were acrobats, and a dancer, dancing tango. And then the whole of our stay in Alexandria was fun, more fun than Cairo. And the spirit of people in Alexandria was quite different. It was freer, especially our Syrians 
well, we had to marry at 15, you know. But in Alexandra, you felt the Greeks, the Italians. The Italians were there since generations. Yes, the synagogue there was built by an Italian architect, you know. But so there was this feeling of place, of a culture that that actually came into Cairo because Cairo, this uh, cosmopolitanism that you get in Beirut, that you have in Tangier, that you have in Marseille and in Barcelona, it's a culture that I felt there was there that I wanted to find again. What I wanted when my children left home I was going to travel the Mediterranean. That's a long time ago, 35, 30, something like that, years ago. So I, for me, the Mediterranean was the focus of my research for many years. And then when I got to 80, I just thought, I haven't got the strength to travel everywhere anymore, to carry my suitcase. I'm afraid not to drive on uh, anywhere, even in London. But I still want to cook. I still want to have friends around. It is what I enjoy most in my life at 80. And this is what I want to continue. And to continue it, I had to continue testing recipes. As you know, everybody who ever comes into my house is testing recipes. <laughs> we never eat anything if I'm not testing it or something. But so I decided this is what I'm going to do now. And it turned out it was always the Mediterranean. I felt now this isn't going to be a history book, although there is history here and there. There are stories, there are things, but it's basically just the best food that I could make that we loved the most. Well, I mean, and your, and your work has become part of that story of the dissemination of the cuisine uh, of the Mediterranean. And just uh, talking to you makes me hungry to taste some of the food in this book. <laughs> yeah. In Spain and in Italy, I went to also, I did meet all the top writers of food who are friends. And I, when I went there, I said, do you mind if I put your recipes in my book, you know, acknowledging it. Of course you can. I've put all your recipes in my book. Uh, I went to see in Tuscany, De Medici, Lorenza De Medici. I went and she did a marvelous lunch for me. And I said, I've come to ask you for recipes. And she said, she brought out my book and it had stickers in every page. She said, I'm doing a Mediterranean book. So there you are. It's not just me, but I'm part of it. Claudia, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for joining me on Myself with Others. Thank you for having me. It's an honor for me to be on the podcast. You've been listening to Claudia Roden on Myself with Others a podcast by Adam Schatz. Myself with Others is produced by Richard Sears. This episode is co-presented with the London Review of Books. Thanks to Anthony Wilkes for technical assistance. 
The music on Myself with Others was composed and performed by Richard Sears. Thank you for listening, and please subscribe. Mm-hmm.